A financial plan requires planning. It's savings, RRSPs, investments, and planning for the unexpected. TD Term Life Insurance can help protect your family's financial future if you were to unexpectedly pass away. You can apply for TD Term Life Insurance online or over the phone by speaking to a licensed advisor. If you're under the age of 55, you could be approved for up to $500,000 of coverage without a medical exam. Conditions apply. TD Term Life Insurance is underwritten by TD Life Insurance Company. Visit tdinsurance.com slash termlife to learn more. In the debate over restrictions to stem the tide of the COVID-19 pandemic, there have been holdouts. Restaurants who ignore bans on indoor dining, hair salons cutting instead of closing, and there have been churches keeping their pews filled instead of abiding by capacity restrictions or moving services to the web. In Alberta, one Edmonton area church has become a flashpoint in the COVID culture war between the power of governments to impose restrictions and the rights of those opposed to them. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. Edmonton Journal Justice reporter Johnny Wakefield walks us through the history of Grace Life Church, why the community is opposed to limits on worship, and how it could be following a template set out by the pastor at a California megachurch. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your favorite shows. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Johnny, as provinces across Canada have gone through various stages of COVID-19 restrictions, we've seen some resistance in religious circles. And we've seen some churches, not all by any stretch, but we've seen some churches outright refuse to abide by these capacity limits. What's their argument being against not holding services in person? Well, probably the highest profile church to sort of take that position, certainly in Alberta and arguably across Canada, is Grace Life Church near Edmonton. And they take a literal view of the Bible. And they argue, at least at at this point now, that the restrictions that the Alberta government has placed on in-person worship basically contradict their understanding of scripture. That's sort of the very specific context for this church. I mean, more broadly, I mean, you'll hear similar arguments, I think, from other churches that are taking this step. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of where this particular church is coming from. You talk about Grace Life Church being one of the major holdouts for those who haven't been following Grace Life as a church just outside of Edmonton. I know there's another church in Calgary, I believe Fairview Church, it's called, also refusing to stop holding in-person services. With Grace Life, have they always been against the restrictions? Last spring, everything got shut down. Were they fighting restrictions then, or has it only been recently they've taken an oppositional attitude to this? It's only relatively recently. It was interesting as part of the story, I looked back at how Grace Life had dealt with the spring restrictions and sort of the initial onset of COVID because really they didn't explode into the news until January or February when the pastor was eventually jailed. And we'll get to that later. But back in the initial wave of COVID, they actually did move to online services only. They did sort of what everyone else had done. And it was interesting to me just given where we're at now and how they're sort of for many people, kind of the ultimate COVID scofflaw. Back then, they had taken the online worship step. When they did return to normal in June, they put out a bulletin that, in my mind, could have come from basically any entity, company, faith group, sports 
group, whatever, is your sort of standard, like, yes, we're looking forward to returning to normal. Obviously, we're going to have to do things a bit differently. We're going to make more social distancing space available. We're going to encourage people not to shake hands. Uh, We're going to limit contact with high contact surfaces. So basically between June and December, something changed in this church's attitude towards these restrictions. And do we get a sense of why they changed? Was it internal factors? Was it congregants fed up with the restrictions? Are there any external factors that could have come into play here? It's difficult on some level to say. So, I mean, internally, we don't have a huge sense of what's going on. But we know that by February, the church leadership had put out a message basically saying we believe that the risk from COVID was overblown and that we took these steps initially because we were ignorant of of how serious this virus actually is and that they thought it was going to be more serious and more deadly. And they sort of at that point adopted sort of some of the language you see of pandemic denialism. They started putting pandemic in quotes, essentially arguing that this by other definitions would not have been a pandemic. And what exactly led them to that sort of view is unclear. They said they undertook their own research and that they had a a few COVID cases in July and they turned out to not have been connected to worship and that they weren't serious. So we have sort of a peak of what's going on internally that maybe led to that. Externally is interesting because it's clear that this church is part of a network of churches that have been taking the same decision to continue in-person worship. When you say network, is it part of it like a broader organization like the Lutheran Church or the United Church, or is it affiliated with other churches kind of in a, a less formal way? I definitely say it's the latter. It's interesting. This church is, strictly speaking, it's an independent church. It's formally non-denominational. But it is part of this network that's tied to the seminary where all three of the pastors, including James Coates, attended. It's a seminary in Southern California called the Master Seminary. It shares a campus with a megachurch called Grace Community Church. Mm -hmm. The seminary was founded by the pastor at Grace Community Church, a man named John MacArthur, who is a very influential person in U.S. evangelical circles. And he has been for decades. He's been the pastor at, at Grace Community Church, which can hold, I think, for Sunday worship, six or 7,000 people. Wow. He's been the pastor there, I believe, for, for decades. And most of the church leadership at Grace Life in Edmonton, all three pastors attended that seminary at some point. And I think understanding that kind of helps you understand how we got to the point that we're at today, because... That summer in July, when Grace Life was sort of wrestling with this question of whether to comply with the COVID restrictions or to resume holding in-person services, John MacArthur started holding in-person services at Grace Community Church. And this, of course, made headlines in the U.S. And we've seen examples of other churches that are affiliated with the Master Seminary take the same decision. In doing the reporting for this feature that you worked on, looking at Grace Life, Did you speak with anyone at the Master Seminary or at Grace Community Church or people who have previously been there about what the thinking is among MacArthur? Or has MacArthur been on record saying what his beliefs are related to the pandemic? Well, MacArthur has been, I think, pretty upfront saying that he doesn't believe that the pandemic is the threat that it was portrayed to be. I think he's sort of adopted the pandemic denialist rhetoric that you're starting to see. And as for what's going on at the seminary, I did speak to a former student there 
who actually did leave after the most recent semester just because he was concerned about how that institution was handling the the COVID protocols that were in place in California. And for their part, did the seminary have anything to offer in response to some of these concerns? They basically said that they do have COVID protocols in place, that they're followed, and that they don't want to argue with this particular student who's left and is pursuing his theological education elsewhere. But they've also been very vocally supportive of Pastor Coates and Grace Life. At some point during this whole controversy, they put out a statement basically saying that Coates is similar to Christian martyrs of the early church, various figures who have rebelled against authority throughout the history of the faith, including Martin Luther. So it's very clear that he's getting support, certainly morally, from that institution. And it's interesting because the student I spoke with, who previously attended Master Seminary, said that the reaction that Grace Life and Grace Community Church have had to the pandemic is not universal among graduates of the Master's Seminary. Hmm. There are some who are choosing to follow Coates and MacArthur, but there are others who have decided, hey, we think it's the prudent thing to do and that it conforms to our understanding of scripture that we hold online services and that we do what we can to prevent the spread of this illness. But it does seem to be sort of the former category, those who are opening their churches that are getting full-throated support from the institution. Now, we look at faith communities across Canada, and as I mentioned off the top, you see like a majority of them are saying, okay, we understand that this is a serious health crisis. We get that the faith community is important to our congregants, but we also understand the need to keep everybody safe. So we are going to hold services online. We're going to follow these restrictions because even though we want to obey or follow in the word of our God, that we understand that the government of the day also holds sway over our lives. Do we get a sense as to why a church like Grace Life or like Fairview in Calgary or like Grace Community Church in California feel that that's not good enough? I have to say that there are probably theologians out there who will hear me explain this and want to yell at me. But my understanding is the the general scriptural authority that Grace Life is citing for this is uh, the book of Hebrews, which I believe is the one that basically tells the faithful, look, you you should be meeting in person. Don't forsake that. It's important to have this gathering. But on the other side, there is the book of Romans, which essentially tells believers that you should respect the governing authorities that are in place in your society at you know a given time, mm-hmm. obviously with limits. But that's the sort of tension that's there. And the people who I have talked to about Grace Life's theology and what I've read about Grace Life's theology is that they have sort of a very literal understanding of scripture. I believe it's called scriptural inerrancy, Mm -hmm. that they believe that there's one true interpretation of the scripture, whereas other denominations see the Bible as a source of great wisdom that should be respected, but also that it's sort of a product of its human authors and that there are different ways in context in which you can interpret it. So the people who are opting for online worship have generally cited to me that chapter in Romans that we were talking about saying that, look, you owe a certain level of deference to the people who are governing your country. Pastor Coates earlier this year was arrested and jailed over this dispute with provincial authorities. What led up to that? How many times had health officials been in Grace Life to watch over what was going on and what made them decide to finally take him away. 
So this goes all the way back to June when the church reopened and Coates told congregants in an audio message that they had actually at that point received a complaint about the capacity at their service. And he said at that point, no, we were in compliance, but you need to understand we're going to be kind of under this heightened level of scrutiny. And this sort of continued throughout the summer and into the fall and winter and eventually December when the 15% capacity limit on indoor worship services was put in place. And that's what remains in place to this day and has been sort of the major issue here. AHS, which is the health authority, says that I believe they conducted 18 inspections at Grace Life and that they found them not to be in compliance basically every time. And through court documents and video clips that we've seen online, these sound like they were fairly tense inspections. Uh, there's a description of one in court documents that took place in December and it sounds like some members of the church met RCMP and health inspectors outside and basically said, okay, you say you're coming in, but we just want you to know this is over our protests. And that they then entered the church and observed from a balcony. And it looks like everyone was pointing their phones at each other, recording oh, what was happening. And at some point, Coates apparently asked worshipers to stand and applaud the authorities who were there, which is concerning if you have a bunch of people in an enclosed space applauding and cheering during a respiratory illness like this. And so this back and forth sort of happened throughout the winter and into January and February when it started to become a little more high profile. And in February, Coates was eventually arrested for breaching the Public Health Act. And what ended up with him spending the 35 days in jail had to do with an undertaking that he was asked to sign, which would have basically said, I agree to abide by the public health restrictions and not lead worship services that are not in compliance with these public health rules. And Coates refused to sign that and went back to the church. And that's sort of what led to him eventually being arrested and in spending the 35 days in jail. It would still be several more weeks before Grace Life was fenced off by the health authorities and that very dramatic move that brought us to where we're at today. Do we get a sense as to why it took that long for Alberta Health Services to move in, you know, with the assistance of the RCMP to barricade off the church? You know, they were holding services while Coates was in remand. And even after he was released, they were able to hold services through the Easter weekend. Have we gotten any detail from authorities as to why there was that delay or, or are they not saying much? They're not saying a whole lot. I mean, we don't have a sense. It's not like we've talked to someone who was in the room and they finally made that decision. Basically, what they've said is that all of these actions they took, including ordering the church closed, taking all sorts of legal actions to enforce their public health orders didn't work. But the specific timing of it and why it uh, was, you know, after the Easter weekend instead of before or this week or what have you, it's still not entirely clear. What the various authorities will tell you is that AHS is Enforcement actions like that are independent of government. It's like you know, any policing agency that's they're not given a heads up beforehand. Maybe I shouldn't say they're not given a heads up beforehand, but it's not elected officials who are making this decision. Mm -hmm. It will probably be sometime before we can say with any sort of confidence why they chose that particular week in April to do this. But when they did finally move to close Brace Life, it was quite dramatic. They came in with that trucks around dawn and first fenced off the building itself and then the entire property. And that's sort of where things are at today. 
And the closure of the church building itself, it seems to have galvanized supporters of Grace Life and other groups who are dramatically opposed to restrictions, correct? Like there was a a large showing out at the church and it even got heated at one point where people tried to pull down the fences. What kind of people are making up these groups of supporters? Well, it's interesting because Grace Life, after this sort of dramatic protest happened outside the church, the first Sunday after it was closed, uh, Grace Life, through its lawyers, actually put out a statement saying none of our congregants were there. So you had about, I think the estimates were 400 people who gather outside the church. And there are some, I believe, self-styled patriot groups that said they were coming up there. I believe I saw somebody holding an Alberta independence sign at one of these events. So it's kind of attracted a crowd who's certainly interested in the the sort of conflict and the cultural war aspect of this. Mm-hmm. That's sort of our sense of, of who made up that gathering the first Sunday after the closure. As we found out later, the church itself, they weren't going to let the closure of their building shut them down, right? They managed to find themselves another place to hold services. Yeah. So that Sunday, they actually met in person again, not at the church. We don't know where, but the day after all of this happened, they uploaded another video to their YouTube channel of Coates preaching at an undisclosed location. And it's it's sort of interesting. It's a very tightly cropped camera. He's in front of a slate gray background. You can't really see anyone who's not directly in the frame. So at this point, I think they are quite actively trying to hide where they're doing this so they don't have health inspectors showing up again to try to start this whole process over again. Do we get a sense that there could be further action taken against them? Or are we still, it's a wait and see, you know, if authorities may be trying to track down where they're at and could issue further tickets or sanctions? I'm not entirely sure where that's at, but Coates still has his trial coming up on the Public Health Act charge that he still faces. Uh, The Crown and the defense earlier had reached a deal that basically saw, I think, one of the charges withdrawn, one of them settled through a guilty plea and a fine. Mm -hmm. And there's just the remaining count that he wants to take to trial. And, I mean, Coates and supporters are saying that they're going to make a constitutional argument that these health restrictions basically aren't properly founded in evidence and that these have been violations of their Section 2 protections under the Charter. So I think that's the argument we're going to hear at his trial, what would otherwise be a fairly straightforward, short trial about whether these restrictions were broken or not, I think is going to become something bigger. We could see it go to higher courts. It will be interesting to see what happens. Constitutional scholars that I've spoken to said the consensus is generally that Yes, these are obviously infringements that are being placed on the ability of people to worship how they see fit, but that Section 1 of the Charter also allows government to take reasonable steps under certain circumstances to curtail those rights, and that it's generally believed that the pandemic is a prime example of times where a government might reasonably do that. So Mm -hmm. that's still the play out. I don't think the story is over by any stretch of the imagination. I guess people in Edmonton for sure will be watching that closely, and I imagine the the case will be followed by people in faith groups across the country. Johnny, thanks for your time. Thank you, Dave. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Johnny Wakefield. More from him at edmontonjournal.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.